be subject, subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor their emperor. Servants, be subject to your master with all respects, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is the gracious thing, when mindful of God, who endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Let's pray once again. Father, we who are in Christ are people who have a dual citizenship we're here on this earth and yet we're citizens of your kingdom and we grow weary we grow weary in that tension I pray today that you would help us to understand how to live in that tension better I also pray today that as we see as, as Peter writes uh, everything that we are to do is, is grounded securely in the gospel so many times, Lord, I feel that we grow weary because we become detached from the gospel. We try to live a Christian life and then our life out in the world. And so I pray today that you would reveal to our hearts where there may be areas of our life where that is exactly what is happening. We make that connection. Where there are people in this room today probably who have uh, not the greatest bosses in the world or perhaps a struggle with a spouse or other authorities. And I pray that they would find instruction how to walk through those situations with you today, but also that they find hope, hope that is in Christ, who identifies with all of our suffering. And I pray that we would long for the day and live for the day when his kingdom will be fully realized and that there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more strife, no more... Uh, Authorities abusing their power. But in the meantime, God, help us. Help us to, be to follow the exact example of Jesus Christ in walking through that so that some may come to know you, but so that we might find the joy of identifying in Christ. Lord, I pray for other pastors who are preaching the gospel around the city of Tupelo today that it would be clear. I pray that, that they would, as I prayed earlier, resist the temptation to soften the gospel. They would trust your spirit to work in the hearts of sinful, cold hearts and to bring life to them and to grow your kingdom. 
Give us a burning passion to see others come to know you, Lord. And help us to use every asset that you give us to pursue that. Pray that everything that is said and done today would be for your glory, for your honor. We don't need to just know more about you. We don't need to even just understand your word better. We need to be transformed by your word. And so that's what we're asking for today in these next few moments. In the name of Jesus, amen. Be seated. Appreciate the opportunity to, to preach once again. Uh, Landon's getting a little time away today. So we are living in a, a really interesting time, I would say. <laughs> Even over the past few weeks, uh, past few days, on uh, some of the, the things that have been going on in our nation's capital, it's a very interesting time. It's what theologian worldview watchers sometimes call a post-Christian culture, and that's hard for us to understand right here in the Bible Belt, especially though perhaps with social media, people tend to think, whether rightly or not, that, that the world is, is worse than it's ever been. And no doubt in some place, it is, at least, it is worse than it's ever been. So how do we as believers live and respond to such an environment? And I would point out two things to us here in Tupelo, Mississippi here today. The first is that if your world, your work, your neighbors, your friends, your school, your hobbies, if it really doesn't have any friction or opposition in it to your walk with Christ, you may not have a close walk with Christ. Or uh, you may need to expand your circles. Uh, in Matthew 28, Jesus commands all of his followers or just to go and make disciples. And so that's something we need to be aware of. But if you think we are really comfortable here and there are churches within walking distance, hopefully that are preaching the gospel in any direction from here, I want to point out to some, something to you today. If you have children or grandchildren or if you're a student, this would apply to you or other people that might have any kind of discipling relationship with, there's a very good chance that at least at some point in the future, probably sooner more than later, um, that person is going to be in an environment where that's a negative or an environment that's even hostile to Christianity. And so what I ask you today, what are you teaching? What Are you preparing them for that? About 67 years ago, a man named Richard Niebuhr published, uh, it's a classic book, and it's called Christ and Culture. And it laid out three basic ways that Christians have related to culture throughout history. One of them is called, he called Christ Against Culture. There was another book written recently called The Benedict Option that, that kind of tricks with that thought. And it is for the Christian to remove yourself from culture so as not to be stained by that. Kind of like monasticism, or, or you might think Mennonites, or something like that. The problem is that, that there's no salt and light there, and we're commanded to be salt and light in the world. And also, it's, it's really impossible to exist in this world without interaction. A second option that Niebuhr put forth broadly was, was Christ of culture. I want you to think of uh, the theological liberalism that expanded during the, the last century. Uh, where the edges were cut off of the gospel in order to be more pliable, to more, in order to connect more with the culture around us. And so it knocked the edges of, off the gospel in order to gain a voice in culture. 
And then the third option that he has, and he breaks this out several different ways, is Christ above culture. Uh, it has this overarching thought that the, the fundamental issue of the world was between, it's between God and man. It's not really between God and, and the broken world. It's, that's to say the brokenness of the world is due to the sin of man against God. And so we are to interact with culture on that point. But all of this cause, gives us cause to think, in the world, how do we relate, and in particularly today, how do we relate to the authorities that we have in the world that are over us as we interact with them in culture? Now, look, in 1 Peter so far, we, we, we've seen this. We've seen, that we're in, we've seen that we're chosen by God. We who are in Christ have been chosen by God. We were ransomed by the blood of Christ. We were born again and we were brought out of darkness and then we were given this fire-tested faith and an inexpressible joy, a joy that even in the midst of suffering finds hope and joy. That's in chapter 1, verse 8. And we're now called in light of this to be holy and live lives for the good of others. And in this way, 2.12 tells us, we're to lead the Gentiles to glorify God. So the goal is not to be above culture in such a way that you don't impact it for the sake of Christ, but rather to see even those who would cause you harm to come to Christ. One pastor said this, if you don't want people to, to go with you who are presently heaping scorn upon you, you're probably not a Christian. That, that's a strong statement. Think of the person in your life who is causing you the most agony right now. And what is your attitude toward that person or that maybe small group of people who are, and maybe it is someone in authority over you. There's a really good chance of that. Is your desire for them to come to know Christ? So oftentimes that scorn comes from those who are in authority of us, over us of some kind. And it brings us to this passage in a sentence that you see on your notes. In our display of the presence of Christ within us, and I mean there by the way that we live our lives, we eagerly, eagerly follow his life-giving example of submitting to temporary God-ordained authorities. I want you to notice at the beginning of this passage, right at the outset in verse 13, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake. That's a, a key phrase in this whole passage. And here's what this tells me. Here's what it tells me. If, if my bullseye, I'm going I'm to give some, some balance to what I just said about seeing others come to know Christ. If my bullseye is to be so good to those in authority over me and to be so positively involved in my community... That they're going to look at me and they can't help but come to Christ somehow. That that's my idea. I might just be very sorely disappointed. Because sometimes you can do everything right. And people have hard hearts. And they're not softened. I have a deep desire to see people, especially leaders and authorities, come to know Christ. But, but my bullseye here, the thing that I'm after, if you will, is to identify with Christ in being subject to every institution no matter what happens. That is following his example that, that Christ has said. And, and we'll see the example of Christ subjecting himself today. And he, he carried that out and they hung him on a tree and they murdered him. So 
My example, there is no guarantee, no matter how, how good that can be, no matter how closely I can follow Christ's example, there's no guarantee that it's going to make people come to Christ. So the first truth you see there is that kingdom citizenship motivates us not to prideful resistance, but rather to God-fearing submission, to God-fearing submission. You see, uh, to all of our authorities, to every human institution is the way that Peter puts it. And that institution word is related to the Greek word that's for creature. And what Peter is reminding us here of here is that these are, um, these are finite institutions. No matter how powerful they may be, they are finite. He uses uh, the word supreme. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The big authority. Supreme is the first, is actually the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 2.3 when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So it's a, a more significant authority than yourself is how he's telling us to look at them. And then the governor role uh, brings to mind that there's remnants of this imago Dei, but, but it's corrupted, that he's trying to bring good to the society in his own understanding, but it's a broken understanding because he's most likely not a follower of Christ. And yet we are to submit to them. We're to submit to them uh, as appropriate for their role. I want to read a verse. You don't have to turn there from uh, Romans. This is chapter 13. It's verse 7. Uh, Paul here is talking about submission to authorities. I'm just going to begin in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the government, governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. They're not accidentally in place. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who, who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In reality, that, that's some tough scripture for us because, forgive me if you're an IRS agent here today, but there's not a lot of love for IRS in this room, I can assure you. But we are to see all of these authorities, whether they be uh, policing authorities or governmental authorities, all of these authorities, we, we need to see the truth they, that they are put in place by God and view them that way. It's appropriate and as appropriate for the role. Um, as much as possible. He tells us here as much as possible. Uh, and so what does this mean? Does this mean 
when we are to submit to the authorities, that is carte blanche. It's, it's, there's no limits to that. There are limits. I want you to look in Acts chapter 4 with me. Acts chapter 4. Because there is a higher authority. I'm going to begin in verse 13. This is in the very early days of the church. Peter and John are proclaiming the gospel. Uh, things are happening in the world to, to confirm that they are apostles, that they are sent by God. Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. And they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with this man? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Then in order that it might spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And then I want you to pay attention to, to how the believers respond to this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And it doesn't say, and they had fear of the authorities. It says, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So what I want us to really see there is that there is a limit to how much we obey the worldly authorities. And we have scripture to back this up. I want to point something out here to students or, or parents who have students in public school. I hear phrases like this and I've heard them for a long time that say they've taken prayer out of public school the thing is the public schools are not leading in the prayer but I want to tell you a student in public school under the right circumstances can pray, should pray should lead out in that regard 
and should be bold in doing that, not for the sake of uh, antagonizing anyone else, but for taking the opportunity to, to read Scripture and proclaim the gospel. So I just want to point that out, that, that it's, it's a, as much as possible we are going to, to obey the authorities. And two things I want you to see. The authority of man never dismisses our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. And here, Peter, like Christ, was full of grace and truth as he obeyed. I want you to see that, that his intention was really just to speak the truth. It was not to take on the authorities and try to defeat them. He was just going to carry out his God-ordained mission to proclaim the gospel. And that's what we should do. The Christian's default position should be, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. Uh, culture. I'm here to serve you, authority. I'm here to serve you, city. And I'm thankful that we see much of this in our body here. And I'd love to see more of that. But I'll, we need that to spill over into the community. Even when we don't agree with what's going on sometimes. Then we see that we're to use our freedom in Christ for good. I hope you caught that as Matt read the text a while ago, that, that that we do have freedom in Christ, but we're to use that for good. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, I want you to turn there just a moment. With some interaction with Jesus, he tells us exactly. Uh, verses 24 through 27, this is just after the Mount of Transfiguration. And they come to him about the money. It's always about the money. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. And he could have stopped there. Don't pay your tax. You're just a son of God. But he goes on. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So there's a lesson in there that the Lord will provide every need that we have. But he also points to this. We talked about two kingdoms earlier. It's as if we are born into this broken kingdom as sinners, And so we're walking along through life. And then we're born again into the kingdom of God. And so right now, we're in this period that's overlapping. And so in Christ, we are free. We are not bound by the authorities of men. But in order to identify with Christ, in order to suffer with Christ, we are to live freely under that authority of men. And that's what... Uh, that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this passage. Another place we can turn is Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And this is a passage that's more well known. It's about paying taxes to Caesar. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So these are the forces from every angle that really hate 
what Jesus is doing and in many cases hate Jesus even though they're opposed to each other but they're coming together to trap him in his talk and they came and said to him teacher we know that you're true do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances but truly teach us the way of God is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not should we pay them or should we not but knowing their hypocrisy he said to them why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I would imagine perhaps Jesus paused right there, and they thought, Well, we got him. We thought we were going to have him one way or the other, whichever way he's answered. And so he has spoken against who he claims to be his father. But Jesus goes on. And to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so Jesus is saying the same thing here. That, that because of our freedom in Christ. Because we are in the family of God. We are going to come under the authority freely by choice of who the world is, of, of, of what the world has. So you're not the servant of government and you're not the servant of any other man-created entity, but it's also a God-ordained entity, but you serve them because you choose to serve them. And you're walking within the example of Christ. And we're going to get that to that more in just a moment. Kingdom citizenship, the second point, motivates us to willingly submit to the authority of overseers whether they be just or unjust. And so now we move into the, the second part of the passage uh, where Peter is talking about slaves, and, and this always makes us uncomfortable. Servants is the word he uses, but, but it's the word for slaves. And if you read commentaries, some of them are going to say, well, this is not slavery like we think of slavery. And it's, it's not exactly. It's more indentured servanthood. Uh, many of these slaves had, had higher forms. They, they were very educated people and those types of things. But I want you to notice what Peter does here. We, we may not even get this. Even by addressing how servants, slaves, are to act in this culture, he's giving them value. Because any other writings that people of this time would compare with the letter that Peter wrote to this to the diaspora would not even address service because they were not even thought of as people. They were, um, they were commodities. They did their job. They had good relationships, hopefully, with the people who owned them. Then they died and they went on. There was really no place for them other than serving in the structure of that, that society. And yet Peter here, by saying, hey, I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to tell you how to relate to the people who are, who are in authority over you is giving credibility that this is a person made in the image of God. So kingdom citizenship motivates us to willingly submit to the authority of overseers, whether they be just or unjust. Have you ever had someone in authority over you uh, to treat you like you were not really a whole person. That you were something less than a person. I, 
think this scripture would apply to you if it does. Is, um, Peter, even by addressing them, is moving this culture toward God. He's doing what he can to pull it toward God. What do your words do every day? They're powerful. And so our attitude regarding our overseers should be shepherded by Christ and not by our circumstances. And that is where the tension is. Because the circumstance is so often that we find ourselves in with authorities over us who are not walking with Christ and have, who have no desire to walk with Christ and see people as only commodities to be used is that this is unjust and I need to do something about it and I need to do something about it right now. So I want you to notice this, especially student. Jesus continually submitted to authorities even as he was accosted, even as he was falsely accused, even as he was beaten, even as he was crucified. And so when we are so tempted to decide how willingly we're going to submit to authority, when we do that based on what we think about how worthy they are to receive our, our, our respect and their authority, we should remember Christ. We should remember how there was consistency in his life that he came under the authority of people who had no love for him and only saw him as a threat. And so your good actions in the face of mistreatment are themselves an act of grace from God. Just the, the, the thought and the power and the desire to not operate uh, in, a, in a worldly worldview and to return mistreatment with graceful acts that seeks the good of the other, that in itself does not come from you in your court. It is a grace from God that is put in you. Kingdom citizenship motivates us to willingly submit to the authority of overseers. And then thirdly, our power and purpose for living in the tension of dual citizenship are in Jesus. We, we've talked a lot about some hard things so far here. Pretty much impossible commands in our flesh. Not even pretty much. They are impossible commands. But all through Peter, we'll see this in, we've seen it so far in this letter and we'll see it as we continue through this. At the end of this passage, our power and purpose are in Jesus. He is our only and perfect example. Now, we preach a gospel that says Jesus is our substitutionary atonement, not that he is merely our example of, of living a sacrificial life, that if we could just try to be more like Jesus, then we would be more Christian. That's not biblical. What we preach is, is that Jesus took my place and your place on the cross. His sin was upon him. He became sin. He became your sin and my sin, and he was our atonement, our sin sacrifice. But he was more than that. He was an example. But I want us to understand clearly what this word example means today. Did you, did you ever, when you were young, you had those tablets that were kind of landscape design that you learned to write with? And you opened the tablet up, and on the top line were the letters neatly done. And you may have a row or two of those. And then you'd have other lines where the letters were dotted. And you were to trace over that. So it was, it was embedding in you what those letters looked like. So you had memory 
as you, as you practice that. Some of us practice more than others. I did not practice a lot. If you want to confirmation, you can look at my handwriting. But that's the idea. You're going to trace exactly that example that's there before you. And this is the very type word that, that Peter is using here. For this you've been called because Christ also, for, also suffered for you leaving an example. Don't miss the heaviness of this, this word. It's not, well, there's the picture of him. That's kind of what his life is about. You can look at it in the Gospels and then just kind of get as close as you can. You can shy away from some of this heavy stuff like doing things that you know are going to make you suffer, though. This, this is not what the word example means. It means walking in the footsteps of Christ. He is our only and perfect example. And he, of whom, by whom, and through whom all things were created, submitted to authorities even when he was reviled. And he didn't retaliate. His suffering was purposeful, and it gives our suffering purpose. Don't miss that. It gives our suffering purpose, and it even gives us joy in the midst of our suffering. God is doing something in and through you every time you're mistreated, whether it's by a parent at a home or a spouse or a boss or anyone else. If it's the law enforcement officer that pulls you over and for some reason he mistreats you, God can use that when your attitude is right about that. He, brought our strain, he bought our strained souls with his own blood. That's what Peter said in this last point. His submission, it was an active submission. It was not a passive submission. He is on purpose submitting to authorities. He's making it a point to that. We see that uh, even when he's talking with Pilate. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to, to what God tells us that he's done through Jesus? Well, well, firstly, we respond in faith and repentance. This Jesus, who not only is our example, but who is our substitutionary atonement, and he did die on a cross, but he rose from the grave and he conquered death so that we could have life. We can turn to him and turn all of our sin to him and trust him to forgive us in faith and repentance. But now I want you to look me, with me again at verse 17. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Those are like uh, quick bullets going out, but I, I don't want us to miss what he's saying here because this is kind of a, uh, a middle point for all of this passage. Peter is saying that we're to fear no man, but always fear God. We're to come under our authorities because of our fear of God, not our fear of man. So when someone mistreats you, you can know that God allowed that to happen. He, he, he ordained that to happen. And we may know why, we may not, not know why, but we can trust that God is going to use that for his glory ultimately. Secondly is to, to honor everyone according to their God-ordained role. He uses the word everyone. I want you to look back, verses uh, 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be as to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Who do good. So just as a matter of note, the emperor here may likely have been, um, it may even likely have been Nero. <laughs> Not a pleasant emperor, and yet we're told to honor him. How do you do that, though? How do you honor everyone? How do you honor a child molester? How do you honor a murderer? Their role is as an accused person. So you, so you honor them in the role that they're in. That's why I read those verses. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, the one who is higher up, but he's not supreme in, light, in the sense that he is the ultimate authority, or to the governors who are doing their job just to try to make society better. You honor them in their role. So the person who is the criminal, you honor them by saying this person is made in the image of God. Whatever they're accused of, they deserve a fair trial. And we should do what we could can to make that happen. So everyone, whatever role they're in, that's where we honor them. That's the honor according to the role. The, the, the third thing is to cultivate this special love for brothers and sisters in Christ. He makes a point of saying that specifically, love the brotherhood. It seems like that would be a given. But in John, Jesus tells us that we'll, we'll first and foremost, will be known by the way that we love one another. And so we should be cultivating a greater and greater love among the body, among our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then lastly, find ways to do good deeds for the Lord's sake. Find ways to do good deeds for the Lord's sake. Um, Peter talks a lot about deeds. Uh, I'll just give you a rundown, and we're not going to read these verses. 1 Peter 2.20, 1 Peter 3.6, 3, 1 Peter 3.10, verse 13, verses 16 and 17. Verses, verse 19, he's always talking about doing good works, uh, longing for the good of others, longing just to give them a picture of Christ so that they may turn to him. And why? Because our whole lives really should be acts of repentance, obedience, and identification with Christ. This Christ, this Christ who shed his blood, who... Uh, who talked to Pilate and uh, willfully came under his authority knowing that it was going to lead to a beating, it was going to lead to a shameful death on a cross. And he did that for our good and for the glory that was set before him. So our whole lives should be acts of repentance, of turning to this Christ. And in that, there will be obedience and identification with Christ. To see that I don't have some sick desire to go out and suffer tomorrow, but I want to identify with Christ. And if that's what it means, then I am willing to do that. To be a part of the picture that he's painting to draw people to himself. I'm going to read briefly for you as we move to the table in just a moment about this Jesus. That we are about to remember as we do on the first Sunday of every month. This is from Isaiah chapter 53. It's going to begin in verse 3. 
He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne all our griefs and carried all our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb... (laughs) that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgressions of my people are you his people today if you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ in light of what he has done, the, the depths of the suffering that he has done, not just an example to show you how much he loved you, but as your atoning sacrifice. And so I would ask you today, we're going to pray in just a moment before we come to this table, but two things. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this one who has suffered and can identify with all of your suffering and has paid the price for your sin and offers salvation to you today as you cry out to Him and Him alone to save you. And secondly, as we pray today, if you are a believer, are you walking with Christ? Is there sin in your life that you, you haven't confessed? Is there, is there someone you need to, to make things right with? This, this bread and juice, they do nothing to make us more sanctified in themselves. But what they do is they give us another way of picturing and remembering what Christ has accomplished for us. I'm going to read, with you, read to you from... 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Peter telling the Corinthians how to observe the Lord's Supper. He's but in the following instructions I do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place when you come together as a church I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. But there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so here's what we do at Trace. Um, We observe the Lord's Supper most often as families gathered together. I want to give us some time just to pray silently ourselves. Perhaps there's, there's sin that you need to bring before God. And then I want to lead you in a prayer. And after that, you don't have to be a member of Trace to participate in this, but you do need to be a member of the family of God to have come to a saving relationship with Jesus. And after you've come and gotten the elements, just go back and gather with your family or friends and have someone pray over that. And uh, we will celebrate what God has done. So let's spend some time in prayer right now, Trace. Father, you have paid by all stretches of the imagination (laughs) the ultimate price. You've given your only son so that we could remember what he has done today. And so that we could do this together as the family of God. I thank you today that as frustrated as we may become with governments, even with church leaders, as frustrated as we may become with with parents who react instead of respond sometimes and use their authority in unwise ways, Would you help us to live in your kingdom in those moments? In light of what Christ has done, he has suffered, but then he has conquered every enemy that we will ever face. Would you help us to trust him? And now as we celebrate this time, Lord, remember you. We have such mixed emotions because we're filled with sorrow thinking about the suffering that you went through and yet we're filled with joy in what you have accomplished on our behalf. And so we praise you for that today. And I pray that we would live our lives doing good to others, respecting authorities, sometimes who seem so much more powerful than we are, for their good, but most of all for your glory, God, because you are our authority and all authorities are ordained by you. And so we praise you for that today. And we tell you we have faith in you. And we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. 
because of what we are remembering now, we have meaning and hope in life. I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that that radiates out through our world. Reveal our hearts to us in the next few moments as we take this Lord's Supper. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can come and get the elements line here and the line here.